Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Carol Gold, who is Professor of Philosophy at Florida Atlantic University, where she teaches primarily aesthetics, philosophy of psychiatry, and ancient Greek philosophy, areas in which she publishes widely. Many of her recent publications concern the relation between aesthetics, ethics, and personhood. She's currently completing a book on true glamour, an unexplored topic in philosophy that stands at the intersection of aesthetics, ethics, and philosophy of psychiatry. Welcome, Carol. Hi, Gil. It's, um, thank you for having me on today. Sure, yeah, I should say welcome back. Uh, we, we talked, uh, I think about six months ago, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, you, you were working on your book then. Um, we will come back to the book, but I want to start with a couple of your older papers. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that some of these ideas might be uh, getting getting uh, getting into the book as well. Uh, and the first one I want to start with is uh, entitled "Why the Histrionic Personality Disorder (HPD) Should Not Be in the DSM." Um, you say in this article, um, I, I, you you argue for a reconsideration of the taxonomy of the histrionic personality histrionic, I should say, histrionic personality disorder, HPD. Mm-hmm. Um, you say, first, HPD does not carry the negative ethical implications of the other cluster Bs, which are antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and so on. Um, I'm not really familiar with uh, the histrionic personality disorder, uh, Carol. So what exactly is it? Well, the histrionic personality disorder, you know, it, it's interesting because there is so little written about it. And um, the uh, the main symptoms are, you know, or the main characteristics are um, things like um, over dramatization, yeah. one's emotions, right. um, you know, and it's and excessive uh, emphasis on appearance. Mm. Uh, and sometimes um, speaking in vague language and having only 
you know, vaguely, um, vaguely formulated ideas. Mm. And it's often, um, it's, it's often said to be, um, well, first of all, let, let me backtrack a moment. Yeah. It's what I would consider a gendered <laughs> uh, pathology. That is yeah. to say, it's almost never um, diagnosed in men, um, but it's often, it's classified with these other clusters. And it's interesting because the ones that they're, that it's classified with, it really don't make sense um, in, in that context. Mm. Um, but um, it's, it has to do with, um, uh, well, it's, it's, it's classified with uh, borderline personality, narcissistic personality, and antisocial personality, mm. which are pretty serious situations, <laughs> <laughs> um, as you know. Um, all of them have seemed to be uh, ethical disorders. Yeah. Uh, that is to say, and I use ethical here in both senses of having to do with moral judgments, moral character, but also just, you know, character. <laughs> and, um, it, you know, there's, it's odd as to why it would be placed in the same group as that. I mean, it doesn't go with either of the others. Um, I mean, in fact, histrionics can sometimes be quite, um, quite functional. It's, not always maladaptive, although perhaps in relationships it might be. Um, yeah. One of the histrionic traits, or one of the symptoms, I should say, of histrionic traits is um, uh, seductiveness, for example, um, theatricality, that sort of thing. But there's no behavioral characteristic that would seem morally bad. Um, Moreover, the way personality disorders have been diagnosed in, in the past, and I think really still are, um, even though the DSM-5 has changed things slightly, it's yeah. just so slightly. And, and the diagnostic methods, even if some of the criteria change, the methods are still there. And if you, they'll, they'll list several traits um, and actually, they're fewer for histrionic than for others. And the, uh, they, they have fewer traits really listed. Um, none, to me anyway, is, um, or to my in, my, in my view, and I argue for this in the paper, is any kind of character flaw or betokens a character flaw. Hmm. And... I think that I'll, I'll explain what I think the, the real problem is with the histrionic, but um, y you know, uh, the histrionic is um, someone who ha all you have to do is meet a couple of those criteria that they list, mm. and you're diagnosed. And that's true of all the personality disorders. You know, there there's a wide range of characteristics that. Um, that they give as criteria, yeah. but you don't have to fulfill all the criteria to be diagnosed. And I think that's a serious problem because once someone has a personality disorder, I think, and especially if the diagnosis is articulated right. um, to the patient, <laughs> um, it has, yeah. 
I, I think long lasting and perhaps even per, um, permanent effects. You know, after this paper came out, um, and by the way, it's still <laughs> widely read and I'm often getting requests for the full text and so <laughs> forth. Um, I, I got letters from people and I mean, I am not a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, I've studied psychoanalysis a bit in various places at various times in my career. Yeah. And I've always been fascinated by it. And um, it's one of the things on, on my to-do list is <laughs> to do more of that. Uh, so in any case, um, you know, people, people wrote to me and said, you know, I'm so glad that I saw this paper. My girlfriend was diagnosed with this and um, she has been very depressed by it and so forth. And I got, I got an email from someone else who had, who said that she was diagnosed with it and so forth. And as you might, <laughs> and you know, this whole idea that they might not have this serious disorder, um, what's considered a pathological personality, right. uh, somehow is a huge breakthrough for them or that their girlfriend or a, a, you know, spouse or whatever. Um, and it's, I, I say girlfriend because as I say, it's so rarely diagnosed of men. Um, yeah. Although that might be changing as um, the gender roles are becoming, um, you know, is, is, are, well, let me say that as culturally, there's a move towards, um, you know, more tolerance towards yeah. gender roles. That is to say, there's a rejection of the bifurcation of gender roles into male and female. Right. So, and gender presentation even more. Um, and I think we see that a lot since I'm at a university, I see that a lot in my students where um, they say, you know, they're experimenting, uh, some of them, but, you know, many of them are, with, as they put it, in transition. Many people, you know, sign their emails after their address and so forth, and uh, affiliation, wherever they may be, will give their pronouns, you know, like, um, as, you, as you probably know. So uh, this may be, this may gradually change how this is treated, but is, you so really, very, you can just have a couple of, you can have a couple of the traits that they associate yeah. with histrionic. And, yeah. uh, they, and when I talk about yeah. personality disorders, you know, I'm not an expert on this, obviously. Uh, I would think about that as sort of a spectrum. It's really difficult to, um, you know, very precisely um, put those things into binary buckets, yes or yes. no, right? Uh, but you say here, which is the problematic aspect you notice here is that some real, uh, you say some real mental pathologies might be the result of gender, racial, ethnic, or sexual orientation biases that lead to genuine, distinctive, even harmful forms of suffering. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, um, the, the diagnosis itself is, is a sort of a traumatic experience for the patient. Yeah. Yes, it is. And if the diagnostic process is very ad hoc, um, you know, you have, a, you have a big list of possible 
symptoms. And as you say, you know, if you see two, three of them, then you are diagnosed um, with the disease. Um, it, it seems it seems very ad hoc to me if that is the case. Yes, I think it is. And I think that, you see, there's three personality disorder clusters. And this cluster B, that um, H, uh, histrionic personality has been placed into, is, yeah. um, is interesting because the other three, there are four of them in, in this cluster, mm. and including histrionic. And the other three seem to sh uh, disorder seem to share a lack of empathy they they seem to share the trait that there's either a lack of empathy or unstable <laughs> sense of empathy for others yeah. and one of the things that i come to believe um in writing this paper and and further reading is that um the the histrionic um, actually has an, an, perhaps an abundance of empathy and that that's how, it, that may be one way it forms. Um, and I, I mentioned this somewhat um, uh, perhaps circuitously in the essay, but I think that if a person, and I think it's, you know, being, um, having certain childhood experiences, you know, youthful experiences um, yeah. with, that may have lead to instability in one's um, emotional life. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, suppose one grows up with a borderline or a narcissistic parent, then you might be apt to become acutely sensitive to the moods and emotions of others and it may lead to an almost over, uh, <laughs> you know, um, empathic capacity, which can be harmful, but it's not immoral. In fact, people in that, in, who have that characteristic can sometimes be exceedingly uh, uh, feel sympathetic, you know, and. It, kind and so forth, because all of those things do have to do with sensitivity to the emotions of others. Mm. So I think that, uh, you know, this idea that it's clustered, it's put in the same category as these other three. And I do think that you, when you said a spectrum, you seem to imply that those other three were differentiated, not in kind, but more in degree of some sort. Yeah, I, I see, yeah, um, I don't know, Carol, I'm, I'm just speculating here. I see two issues. One is, so the other three, as you say, is antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and borderline personality disorder. So those are the three in addition to histrionics, personality disorder, and uh, as you say, B cluster of the DSM, mm -hmm. DSM-4. Um, I see two issues. One is the question of, um, you know, sort of timeline and strategy. Uh, the other three uh, are affecting an individual over a longer period of time, has characteristics mm -hmm. that are much, uh, much more stable. Uh, I don't know if stable is the right term, but uh, it, it's a long term. And histrionics, 
and I don't know much about this, uh, if it is sort of a tactical response to a, a over, um, over emotional response to a tactical stimulus, then there might be some timeline related issues between this cluster and histrionics. I, I don't know if that is true that, or not. That's a great point, Gil. That's a great point. Um, and especially since this concept of histrionic is often conflated with hysteria. And of course, you know, hysterical conversion is an episodic ep um, pathology. You know, it's not some, and, um, but I think that, yeah, I think that histrionics can be sensitive to the reactions of others. And so they develop this adaptive strategy. And I think that sometimes this hyper-emotionality that's behavioral yeah. um, is sometimes an attempt to avoid the emo feeling deeply the emotions that they're feeling because they feel them deeply. Uh, right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Uh, uh, and uh, you mentioned in the paper also the other aspect is sort of the, the negative moral connotations, as you say, uh, of the other three compared to histrionics. And again, that it doesn't seem to fit very well, right? Yes, that's right. And I think also the reason it's an interesting question is that it shows us something about how culture can affect psychopathology or can affect our perceptions of it. Yeah. Um, because as I say in... in the article, I think I said this, <laughs> um, is that, uh, that if anything, histrionic personality disorder is not a personality disorder, it's a cultural disorder. Mm, that yeah. because of you know, our cultural context, um, and basically you know, the patriarchal culture, um, would um, breed a certain uh, concern with revealing one's true self or revealing not that anyone should reveal one's true self it's <laughs> no one no one does and no one uh, perhaps should in general on you know in their social interactions um, yeah. uh, except you know with very significant close others but uh, you know I think that for women in this culture it's been well in I, I think our culture has been changing, you know, of course, cultural change is so incremental, but, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but that women have had to adapt in that way. Um, and, you know, it's almost a cliche to say that, you know, if a man uh, is, uh, speaks his mind, he's assertive, and the woman is what, <laughs> you know, um, strident. <laughs> they're different right. things. But you could also connect this with one other thing. And this is, um, uh, and actually there's, there's a kind of history to this. There's a cultural critic, art historian uh, named John Berger. He's also just a, a writer. I mean, he's um, done some novels. He's a really excellent writer. But in, at the beginning of the women's movement, which, um, I take it from, you know, things that I've read, uh, 
you know, was, there was a lot of chaos and a lot of upheaval. And, you know, when, say, it must have been like in the late 60s, early 70s, when uh, that's really when I think identity politics began. Um, you know, we, we see the roots of it there. And there was this, the emergence of what's called liberal feminism. Yeah. And um, Bircher, in any case, wrote a well-known piece called Ways of Seeing Women. Actually, it's part of a very short book called Ways of Seeing. And I think there was a BBC series that it was based on very short. But he, the beginning of it and I, is that women, oh, men act and women appear. That was, that's how he begins. He, well, at first he talks about the power of the image because he's saying that uh, images that we see even from the, you know, before we can speak or before we have a, uh, a good grasp of language, that images are so potent in forming our ideas of the world and ourselves. Yeah. And he, he says that the images of women, if we look back in Western art, and he only speaks about Western art. He doesn't think this applies to uh, other cultures, you know, Asian cultures and so forth. And I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm not sure about his whole, the, whole, the, the whole thing. But um, he says that uh, women are so conscious of the way they appear. And he points out, you know, he, he looks at Western painting from, you know, earliest to, to up to modern photography and so forth. He says that women are always looking out at the spectator, and there's always a kind of seductiveness and so forth. Um, and the, spect the envisioned spectator is always a white male. And, you know, that this is a problem with our, well, he doesn't say it's so problematic, actually. <laughs> he, he's, he seems almost to endorse it. But the, I, this idea that, and so he says that that as a result of this, as a result of the power of the image, he said women develop a split self because they see men as acting and, you know, for, um, aiming towards goals and so forth, and women are valued for their appearance. And so he says that the woman really develops a split self so that whatever she's doing, she's always watching herself do it. So note that, you know, of course, this would be problematic if it's right. Um, and actually, I always use this essay, by the way, in my aesthetics course, and the students respond to it <laughs> quite, quite strongly. Um, many believe it still holds, many don't. Although I think that men have, the basic idea here is that women have been so objectified that they internalize that objectification and objectify themselves so that whatever they do, they can't get away from the way they are seen doing it. And um, this actually goes back to uh, a great um, African-American intellectual, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote um, uh, about, you know, he was at Harvard, he was, um, and he wrote about um, the way, what, what it's like to be a black person in the kind of society. You can only imagine the turn of the 20th century, the early 20th century, what it would be like to be at Harvard and be a black. 
<laughs> and of course male because they didn't have female serve that time. Um, so I, I wonder that, at and all. he has this idea of double consciousness, which is that the you when you have a dominant group, you always have to be aware of how that group sees you. You know, and in a sense, if you apply that to, to women, and if you see that a certain histrionics, um, to go back to the histrionic personality, um, you know, I think that some of them may be reacting to a certain more of a family dynamic than a social dynamic, but I do think that it's a cultural disorder because, after all, psychiatry you know, and medicine in general has been um, a male institution. Yes. Yeah. Although I should mention, I just want to mention one thing, and that is that I am not a liberal feminist. I'm a feminist, but not of that sort. Um, I'm, um, I, I belong in a different way, if let me put it that way. So. Um, I wondered, Carol, you know, your hypothesis is, is uh, possibly testable, right? So, you know, so suppose we look at um, you know, if, if uh, let's say we have some sort of an index for of male domination or egalitarianism across the world, uh, we might be able to look at incidence rates of HPD if it varies across regions and across countries. And as you mentioned, um, hopefully we are moving toward, hopefully I say, <laughs> moving toward more of an egalitarian society we should see incidence rates of HPD declining over time as well. That's right, uh, we should. Um, so I don't know if there's any data. Well, I don't either because I think that in the, the latest editions, they keep including it. Um, no, I think, and from the, from the number of emails that I've had from people who said, oh, I've been diagnosed with this, I'm really fascinated by your, by your paper, et cetera. But I think that it has, I think that it's widely, in, insofar as it's widely um, diagnosed, I mean, it, it really isn't, but it, as I said, it's primarily for women. But I do think it has a lot to do. I think if, if we looked closely at males who showed some of the same characteristics, they would not be considered pathological. And I also think, though, that this. First of all, the enactment of, uh, of one's emotions yeah. rather than the, you know, allowing them to remain internal. Um, and as I said, it's an adaptive strategy, but pathological, um, character flaw, uh, dangerous, <laughs> no. Mm -hmm. and. But I think that it could be possible to say a histrion a so-called histrionic, which, by the way, um, would have been um, in Freud's time, uh, hyst it would, they would have been considered hysterics. And in fact, some people still call histrionic. They can, you know, they conflate histrionic and hysteric, which I think is a problem because <laughs> just the connotation of the word hysteric, you know, it's a problem. But I yeah. think that, that one thing that might happen in a person's life is if they have a significant um, person in their family or 
um, immediate uh, environment, you know, someone who has, you know, perhaps a nurturer, a caretaker, or whatever, who might have a more volatile personality. And if someone is acutely sensitive to others, it might mm. enhance their tendency to be so. And moreover, <laughs> um, it might be a strategy that they develop for moving through life that becomes adaptive for them, especially if they have a long-term relationship with it. For example, suppose you have a person, say you have a young child who has a borderline or narcissistic parent. Um, they're not likely to become borderline, um, but they are likely to become acutely aware of someone who's more um, mercurial and irascible and know, know how to deal with that. So does that make I, sense to you? I mean, you know, it so does. I, I think it's much more a question of the individual's psychodynamic history. Yeah, but I also like the term cultural disorder. Mm -hmm. um, one, could, one could imagine, and obviously I don't know anything about this, one could imagine that uh, this characteristic uh, in certain cultures would be considered completely normal. Yes, even desirable. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, so given, given certain conditions, given certain cultural constants and architecture, uh, this might be expected. So anything deviating from it would be considered a disorder. Uh -huh. so, so, so I like the idea. It's a cultural disorder. And when we westernize it um, in, in, a, in a narrow context, it, it finds its way to the DSM. It, find, it, it gets articulated as a disease. Uh, it has diagnostic characteristics. Um, so we have systematized something that appears to be uh, highly unsystematizable, <laughs> if that's yes. a... Yes, that's right. Because it's more of a style, I think. But yeah. I also think that it's a strategic style. And in some cases, it may just be a person's style. I mean, people, I think, are born with certain um, distance, well, certain tendencies to develop in certain ways and or a wide range of ways. And some of them, depending on their environment, will um, perhaps go in one direction rather than another. But someone who has, you know, if we didn't have uh, people with a flair for drama, <laughs> think of how <laughs> think of how boring our cultural uh, uh, experiences would be. Um, yeah. But it's not to say that all actors are uh, histrionic in ordinary life, but there are some. I'm, and and it just you know I I just remembered a novel I read eons ago, and. It was by Aeneas Nin, and it was called a, a Spy in the House of Love, something like that. And I don't remember it in great detail, but I do remember that the protagonist, who was a woman, was married. But she had, she really didn't know her husband very well. Um, he was aloof, perhaps absent. But she had, um, uh, uh, you know, relationships, uh, ancillary to the, to the marriage, we might say external to it. And there were, there were consequences. She was unhappy, turns in, and 
one of the things that she says at the end of the book that I do remember now, it's kind of all coming back to me, um, is that she said if only she had been raised to develop her her talent for drama. I remember her saying that if only that talent had been nurtured and developed and not castigated or something like that. But it was really, um, I, I'm, and, and I think that that's the kind of thing that uh, might be going on with the histrionic. I mean, not that they would necessarily have an unhappy marriage or, um, you know, develop um, and I have to say, widely promiscuous, you know, behavior because the, I, I think that this protagonist was, but um, but rather, uh, you know, some people are born with with certain talents, with certain um, abilities to perform. Um, some people. Uh, perform well in everyday life, but not on stage. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I do think that it's very complicated and that it does have to do with one's culture and one's, um, as I said, in yeah. unique psychodynamic history. And each one of us does have a unique history. Right. Um, and so there are going to be different degrees of this. Um, and in terms of excessive attention to appearance, um, I mean, that can lead to certain other disorders. Um, you know, I think I mentioned this in, in my article. I mean, that can lead to things like um, eating disorders, um, body dysmorphia, et cetera, or just, or just generalized anxiety. Um, I've known dancers who, uh, whose fixations on their bodies, uh, you know, did sometimes spill over into pathology. On the other hand, they have to pay attention to their bodies if they're going to be dancers. If it's that important to them, right? I mean, you know, and uh, so, but when it becomes path, it can become pathological. And similarly with these uh, traits of personality. And when you get when you get into a culture that. Um, where women who who are attractive are valued in certain ways, and, and we we all know too. I'm sure you know, Gil, of uh, the studies about how uh, appearance affects one's uh, uh, well, the way one is treated in the classroom as a child, yeah. the way um, uh, on in the workplace. In fact, even if one gets into the workplace, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure you've seen those. Studies, and I mean, I know that some of them are rather superficial, and I'm not sure I believe them all. Uh, I don't think all of them. Let's let me put it this way: are that careful, and I think some of them begin with a bias that's perhaps more overt than other studies in 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 other studies. But um, you could see where this would become a problem for um, someone. It could spill over into. Um, body dysmorphia. Similarly, with a person who has a dramatic flair in life, it might, let's say, spill over <laughs> in, into becoming maladaptive. It's only, you know, in being histrionic in the ways that are described, um, don't become in any way pathological. 
until yeah. they spill over into you know excess until they become excessive and i would also argue um, and this perhaps would be counter to many in today's culture and, and philosophy in general i have to say from the time of plato okay let's go back to but uh, i can leave only one earlier philosopher who would take this view but you know our surfaces are not totally unimportant to our living in a polis or in a social world, are they? Because, you know, if you see someone who's particularly unkempt or who is, um, who, who isn't groomed, who isn't bathed, who doesn't care about bathing, who says, I don't care how people see me. Well, in fact, you know, um, to quote this philosopher, an American philosopher who wrote an essay in the 40s, his name is Kurt Dukas, and uh, he, he was, um, uh, you know, a well-known philosopher at his time. He, he wrote a, a small essay about this, and he said, it's actually, there are a number of reasons why we should care about our appearance. And this was, I don't think people realize how revolutionary his little essay was because uh, when you have a split, when when you split the intellect from the rest of the self, you know, of course that becomes, and, and you move, remove the human being from nature in a sense, um, yeah. you are diminishing the importance of the body. And as Dukas says, we meet people on their surfaces and that's where they first know us, right? I mean, you meet somebody and if you're, you know, deviant <laughs> in the way you present yourself in some way, of course, that's not going to be, that's not going to work for you, um, either prudentially or perhaps even morally. I mean, it's, some people would consider it, he considers it the height of spiritual selfishness to think that that's unimportant. I don't know if I'd go that far, <laughs> but. It's, it's, uh... I mean, it's it, there's a more general concept, right? Um, for one to communicate, um, there is obviously appearance, there is language, there are accents, there are, you know, uh, the, the, the way that you might move your head, all sorts of things happen. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I look at that as a whole spectrum again of how one one communicates. The question is, it's a, it's a slippery slope when we think about diagnosis and disease. Mm -hmm. um, if, if the criteria is that it is excessive, since excessive cannot be defined very clearly, uh, by definition, it makes it, it makes it very ad hoc, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, it does. It might, might not be my excessive. And so... So I think any disease state that there's something like this, um, I, I, I find it difficult to understand how it could be diagnosed this way based on, you know, some uh, individual's opinion, right, on the characteristics. Yes, and actually what you said was so, so insightful and uh, on point about self-presentation being far, far more complex than just the bodily appearance. You're right, it has to do with movement, with language. 
and which is something I've tried to convey to my students um, that the kind of language that they use is part of the way they're presenting themselves and uh, yeah. shows a certain mode of um, self-regard or lack thereof. So, right, right. And also regard for others, um, which is important. I mean, because some people do use offensive language, offensive in many ways. Um, but, and certainly, you know, what you said about the way one moves. I mean, there are all sorts of things that can make a person, um, you know, attractive or unattractive or et cetera. Um, I mean, self-presentation is extremely uh, um, compli complicated. Um, and, but you see, I think that a person who has histrionic traits in the sense that they, they define it here in terms of enactment of emotions, the enactment of emotions, um, yeah. is aware of some of those things. You know, for example, it not just appearance, you know, and they say excessive attention to appearance. Well, it's not always excessive attention to appearance. Sometimes it's excessive attention to, you know, manners or something like that, or someone who's um, so strict in being formal in, in their behavior with others. Uh, yeah. you know, things of that sort. Um, there are all sorts of ways it can be manifested. But, and, and I don't think that, and that's just one criterion that they use. So it's possible that there are, uh, you know, it, it may be uh, another, I mean, excessive theatricality is, is different from excessive attention to appearance. Um, seductive behavior is different from excessive or, or, or being theatrical, theatrical behavior. You know, having a tendency to behave theatrically. Um, those are all different. They don't, um, they are not uh, in any way um, necessarily related. You see? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, it's of all the diagnoses um, and the diagnostic criteria, these make the least sense. And right. Yeah, so Karen, we'll take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about the book. Um, uh, is it uh, is it close to being done? Well, I have a lot written. I have most of the chapters written um, okay. in one in one stage or other. Um, yeah, yeah. But yes, yeah, so but uh, it's it's close to being done. <laughs> Excellent. I, yeah, we'll take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we we'll talk about the book. Okay. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.